Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. It makes sense to look your dragons in the eye. In the Department of Spiritual Therapy, I do it all. Why do you want to write the book? What's the story? And what prevents you from writing it? I'm Richard Gerhart. And I'm Elizabeth Gerhart. You just heard some snippets from our show. We had amazing people on. Listen for the rest of it. Want to patent your invention? The chance is near. You've given it heart. Now get it in gear. It's Passage to Profit with Richard and Elizabeth Gearhart. I'm Richard Gearhart, founder of Gearhart Law, a firm specializing in patents, trademarks, and copyrights. I'm Elizabeth Gearhart, not an attorney, but I work at Gearhart Law doing the marketing and I have my own startups. Welcome to Passage to Profit, everyone. The road to entrepreneurship where we talk with startups, small businesses, and discuss the intellectual property that helps them flourish. We have somebody who's been here once before. It's the amazing Christina Mandlachiani, and she's the co-founder of Mind Valley, and also has a new book coming out, Becoming Flossom. And I'm really looking forward to speaking with her again because she has done so many amazing things and has so many amazing programs. Yes, if only our flaws could make us awesome. <laughs> also returning to Passage to Profit is Tisa Harster with the Angel Campaign. And Tisa is a medium who really gets in touch with the other side. And I just can't wait to talk to her again because what she does is amazing. And then we have Lee Barnathan, who is a ghostwriter. No, he does not write for ghosts, <laughs> but he has like incredible stories about people he's done books for. So can't wait to dig into that. I'm really looking forward to speaking with all of our guests. They're all sort of high minded, aren't they? We have a high minded program coming up for you. But before we get to our distinguished guests, we want to talk a little bit about trademarks. And I guess the lesson today on IP in the news is you can file a trademark, but that doesn't mean that you're going to get one. So everybody or most people who follow football are familiar with the Washington football team story. A long time ago, they were known by the Washington Redskins. And of course, many people objected to the use of the term Redskins because they felt it was derogatory to Native Americans. So there was a huge intellectual property trademark controversy around that. And eventually, though, that kind of went away because they changed their name to the Washington football team. Now they've decided to rebrand themselves and they're calling themselves the commanders, right? So they picked that name. They filed their trademark application at the U.S. Trademark Office. And guess what? They're having trouble getting the trademark. So after all of that trouble, they're finding it difficult to actually get a trademark on the name that they wanted. So the lesson is that it's not always easy. You don't just file a trademark. Sometimes you have to work to get it. And so they're in the process of doing that now. So you mean the USPTO won't change the rules for the football teams? <laughs> like the well, rest NFL do? has a lot of sway in this country, but I don't think that they're going to do that. So there are two rejections. So when the trademark office doesn't like your trademark, they reject it. And one rejected is for the Commander Classic, which is a football game between the Navy and the Army, and they call it the Commander Classic. And they've had a trademark since 2020. And then there's another guy out there, Martin McCarthy. And Martin, when he heard that the Washington football team was going to be filing trademarks, he filed a bunch of trademarks with the word commander in them, just hoping that they would pick one of those and then they would have to pay him money. I thought he said he was going to gift them to them. Well, that's what he said when he filed them back like two, three years ago, but we'll see what actually happens. Anyway, the moral of the story is you don't necessarily get a trademark when you file it. The commanders are going to have to deal with these rejections at the patent office. Their attorney says that they're very confident, but you never know what's going to happen. And it would be a real shame if after all the branding that the commanders have done, the website, the merch that they've put out, if the trademark gets denied, because then they're going to be in a pretty tough spot. Anyway, that's IP in the news for today. I'd like to ask our distinguished panel, 
Christina, tell us what you think about this controversy. You know, as I was listening to that, I thought I actually like the you know Washington football team quite well because it's so clear until I remember that I'm European. So maybe what I mean by football is very different. And, you know, if we were talking about trademarks internationally, that might have been the tough word. But in my opinion, since they already had to rebrand, then maybe not so much damage is going to be done if they have to rebrand again. Yeah, I think that people are sort of used to them rebranding now. So we'll see what happens. I think that the attorneys probably knew already about these other marks that were out there, because usually you do a search first and you find out what the lay of the land is. And when you're picking marks, especially marks like the commanders, they're very kind of well-known terms. And so you almost always expect that there are going to be obstacles. And part of the job of their attorneys is to clear those. Pizza, tell us what you think about this controversy. Well, I could see how there could be a lot of confusion with continuously changing your name and rebranding. That could cause a lot of confusion. Yeah. I mean, on the back of the jerseys, they could have a question mark, right? (laughs) (laughs) And Lee, what are your thoughts on all of this? I'm of the opinion that the trademark should be denied because the word commander is a common word. And I don't believe you should give trademarks to common words. Contrast that with Pat Riley's trademark of three-peat. Now, that's a word that isn't a real word. He created that. He got the trademark for that. But commander, sorry, that's a rank. That's a term that's used in the Navy. So I don't believe that they should be granted a trademark. And by the way, the Commander Cup, I always thought it was called the Army-Navy game. Well, now they have to have merchandise to sell. So now it's the Commander Classic, I guess. Oh, Commander Classic. I still know it as the Army-Navy game. I think people do sometimes get generic words as add-ons, and correct me if I'm wrong, because they're filed in certain classifications. Like, if you were a commander in the Navy, you probably wouldn't be printing up T-shirts with your brand on it. (laughs) So that might be one way they wiggle around it. That's exactly right. There's different classifications. If you use the word commander, say, for computers, no, there's not necessarily a connection to the rank or a person who is a commander. So you might be able to get a trademark on that word. On the other hand, if you are literally a commander and you're trying to get a trademark on something related to your status, then it probably won't happen. So anyway, all good points, and we appreciate your participation. Now, time to go to our distinguished guest, Christina Mandlachiani, who I mentioned is the co-founder of Mind Valley, and she's also written a book, Becoming Flawsome. I love the title of that so much. And it's so good to have you back, Christina. Thank you for joining us. And tell us a little bit about Becoming Flawsome. Thank you for having me again. And I, as, as you were discussing this uh, issue with IP, I thought I was actually lucky to pick such a word for my book because it wasn't grabbed yet. <laughs> it, yeah, it's an unusual word. And I actually thought that it was pretty clear. So how it happened and, you know, when you write a book, you first write a book and then you come up with the titles for that. Well, at least that's the classical way of doing it. I actually found the word uh, somewhere on the internet after the book manuscript was ready. And when I saw it, it just clicked into place. I was trying to find the perfect title until I saw this word and then this word kind of made it all clear to me. But as I have been talking about it, I realized that a lot of people don't understand what it means or misunderstand it or misread it. So people have asked me about being flawless or the pressures of always being awesome. So I think the the conversation is maybe a little unusual. So the book is about, in essence, about the fact that we are imperfect and rather than being Uh, ashamed of our imperfections or shrinking from them. Uh, It makes sense to look your dragons in the eye and see how you can turn your imperfections and your flaws to become your biggest assets. That's a wonderful idea. So how do people do that? It's a process. You see, we get to this point in our life, wherever we are, we all have probably different points in our life, thinking along the same patterns. And uh, one of the patterns that we have as society in general is that you know, we have to improve ourselves. And by improving, we mean we have to take things, uh, well, which we're bad at and, and start working on them. So we never even allow the or permit the thought that those things that I think are my weaknesses may be actually turned from being my curses to becoming my blessings. And it's a process. It requires a whole bunch of skills and some practice and some training, because the first step You have to be uh, courageous to face your dragons, to face your darkness, to face your dark side or your weaknesses, your imperfections. Tolerance for personal imperfections is very different in people. There are people who are quite happy to recognize imperfections. And then there are loads of us 
perfectionist. We might recognize our imperfections, but we would never, for the love of life, show them to the world. So we'd rather present our polished facade to the world. And then there are those who don't even believe that they have any flaws or imperfections. So that's the first step. But then uh, from there, the whole journey begins because uh, there are so many reasons why we wouldn't face those dragons. And then if we do, a lot of people are tempted to slay the dragons, but that's not what I talk about. So yeah, it's a process. It's a journey. It's interesting too. So who defines what is a flaw? I knew these people. I knew this couple. This woman filled every single silence with words. Like she never stopped talking ever. And her husband never talked. And you're kind of like, which one has the flaw? I mean, I know they should probably meet in the middle somewhere. But do you recognize the flaw if you talk too much to recognize it's a flaw if you don't talk at all? Or is one of them reacting to the other? Well, that's definitely true. Uh, because even if we look about on the opposite side of that, we uh, humans, we generally have this tendency to want to be a better version of ourselves. So there is a picture of what it means to be the best version of me or the perfect version of me. And that is also very different from person to person. For some people, it's maybe mastery. For some people, it's success in another way. Uh, so the same with our flaws. You know, some people define perfectionism as their flaw. Uh, well, I think for a lot of people, perfectionism is more like a badge of honor rather than a flaw. Now, the, the question which is probably a little bit more controversial is where do you draw the line between accepting your flaws and refusing to grow, evolve and become better? And that's uh, the fear that a lot of people say. They say, do I have to accept all my flaws? What if I don't move, if I eat junk? You know, the typical uh, culprits. It's very important to understand the difference between our destructive patterns or, say, damaging behaviors versus intrinsic parts that we have. So a very simple surface example would be smoking is more of a destructive pattern or bad behavior, destructive behavior, whereas addictive personality may be just your type of personality that you can't cure yourself from, but you can learn to live with that or deal with that. Interesting. Just to understand that addictive personality may be a slippery slope because on one side of the spectrum of addictions is, let's say, alcohol or smoking or whatever it is, drugs. On the other side of that is actually meditation, yoga, exercising, sports, work. So these are expressions of, in essence, addictable personality. A lot of us have that. I do have that for sure. I get very easily dragged into things where, you know, the lines blur. So there is a difference between you working on your patterns and your behaviors and your habits, which you can change, definitely. That's what personal growth industry is about, versus trying to slay a part of you, which which is integral, which makes you what you are. So what do you think are the origins of perfectionism? Why do people think that that is being perfect is like the best thing? Well, I think I think there are so many perfectionists in the world that uh, I wouldn't be able to say for everyone. And I'm sure there are different paths how we get to that. In my case, for example, I identify as perfectionist. I was born in Soviet Union in an incredibly idealistic society and actually grew up in Soviet Union. So that society is uh, was expecting perfection in on many levels. I studied really well. I actually got a whole bunch of medals when I finished school. Uh, I'm the only child of my parents. Uh, I'm ambitious. So all these th uh, things that led me eventually to the situation where perfection was the only possible goal. And the problem with perfectionism is not really the high bar, because high bar is actually cool. It's not bad. But the problem with perfectionism is that anything less than perfect is considered a failure. And that means that if you're number one, it's cool. But if you're number three, you're a failure. And that would be also half the problem. The real problem is that perfectionists have really low tolerance for failure. It's so painful to fail. So rather than failing, what we do is that we try to stay comfortably successful. My theory is that if you can increase your tolerance towards failure, towards your personal imperfections, it's so much easier to truly go out and challenge yourself and, and achieve things in the world. What's so funny because Apple Computers, Steve Jobs, what I've heard and read about him, he was such a perfectionist, right? And he wore the same clothes every day, so that was one less decision he had to make, right? Everything had to be perfect. But he actually drove everybody around him crazy. He drove them so crazy that they fired him from his own company. And then the lack of leadership in his style didn't work, so they had to bring him back. So his perfectionism certainly served a purpose, but I think perfectionism is great. Like, I love going to someone's house where everything's perfect and they do the perfect dinner. I mean, that's just like bliss to me. 
But in some cases, it can be taken a little too far because other people aren't going to meet up to your expectations no matter what, right? You know, there's this uh, wonderful saying that you're not happy because everything is perfect. Everything becomes perfect when you're happy. And this is one of the paradigms that perfectionists have, which they don't understand, that their happiness doesn't depend on perfection. It's really hard to be in the vicinity of perfectionists. I'm a perfectionist and I know that I'm a really tough person to be around because the thing is that our relationship with the world is a reflection of our relationship with ourselves. So when I say that perfectionists have low tolerance of failure or personal imperfections, that is true to their world. So it's really hard for perfectionists to see someone not trying 120% for the perfection. It's really hard for perfectionists to tolerate any kind of imperfection in their environment. And that's really tough on our loved ones. So, Chrissy, what motivated you to write this book? Well, I'm a writer and writers write, <laughs> singers sing, and dancers dance. <laughs> That's my um, way of self-expression. You know, I didn't write a book about becoming flawsome. I just sat down to write a book. And as I was writing it, I figured out where I go. So that was my case. And uh, maybe that's my artistic background. But uh, very often, self-expression happens in that same way. I used to do art when I was a child. And I remember we had those annual appraisals. So all our teachers would look at our art pieces and see what they think about them. And it was so exciting because I would just create art. And then at the end of the year, I'd find out what I actually wanted to say with that art because all those critics saw the things that were subconscious to me. So I think that book was in a way similar. It's a journey. It's very unconventional. It's very different from regular nonfiction books. So maybe it's a little cliche, but I just channeled something out of myself onto the paper. Passage to Profit is about entrepreneurs and entrepreneurism. Do you see any connection between perfectionism and entrepreneurism? And what can entrepreneurs do if they are perfectionists? You know, perfectionism is not really a diagnosis. So it's a little hard to say, you know, who is perfectionist, who is not. And a lot of people associate with that. Now, I have been in business for 20 years, so I consider myself an entrepreneur, perfectionist entrepreneur. But a lot of entrepreneurs that I know, at least on the surface, they don't look anything like perfectionists. I think, considering that entrepreneurship is in essence creativity and risk-taking, there is no space for perfectionists. Perfectionism is about, you know, it's about crafts. You can do perfect crafts. If you do art, there has to be space for error, for the stroke of genius, which doesn't happen in the hamster's wheel. So I think... If you are a perfectionist entrepreneur, it's really good to face the truth and to put the systems in place to prevent perfectionists from stopping you. Well, that's really true because you're not going to find perfectionism from the other people that you have to work with. Well, I mean, in the legal profession, perfectionism is sort of the rigor. I mean, it's really expected. If you write a brief and file it with the court and it has typographical errors or spelling errors or anything, you would definitely be judged by others in the profession in not a positive light. I'm not saying that that's necessarily healthy for mm -hmm. the people who are involved in it. Eventually, you train yourself, right, to be careful and to avoid those kinds of mistakes. But it is a kind of perfectionism. You know, I would actually suggest, because perfectionism is a personality trait in essence, but I would actually suggest to maybe look at it as, you know, attention to detail, being meticulous, being impeccable, having high expectations of, let's say, comfort or, or this kind of approach, because it is important which words we use. And perfectionism is that kind of harness on you, which doesn't let you express yourself fully. So I am absolutely for high standards, for high bar, for being attentive to details, but we also can't tie our happiness to perfection because that's never going to happen. So you're seeing a distinction between high standards and perfectionism. Yes. And so is perfectionism then more of an attitude? Is it more of a frame of mind? There's always a question, why do you need that perfection? Is that so you feel better? Or there is an actual logical reason why something has to be perfect. If you are sending something out in the space, then probably the calculations have to be perfect. A lot of times the problem with perfectionists is we don't know the boundaries. So one thing, okay, I might expect high standards out of my work, but then I would expect my children to be perfect in everything they do. Their decisions, their choices, their studies, that's a lot of pressure. So how can somebody who suspects themselves of being a perfectionist or maybe is a perfectionist in a certain area, how can they identify 
sort of the behaviors that they're engaging in that are counterproductive? And then what can they do about it? You know, actually, in my book, I don't uh, talk about perfectionism as so much. Perfectionism is just this one flaw, or I call them dragons, which is very easy to admit. People usually have uh, no shame in saying, oh, I'm a perfectionist, even if it does prevent them from doing certain things. In my studies, I'm much, I go much deeper into the dark side of human, <laughs> of human essence. And uh, I, I invite people to talk about other flaws and imperfections that they have. For men, for example... The version of perfectionism is being uh, strong, being perceived as strong, as successful, as you know, as the guy who has it all together. And that's a slightly different conversation from perfectionist per se. So the question that I want people to ask is, what are those things that make you shrink or make you feel less than worthy right now? Can you look them in the eye? Can you face them? Can you admit that you have it? And what do you do? What is your choice to do with them? I do believe that people usually know the truth inside. The problem with us is that we're not taught to listen to ourselves, which is one thing, but also trust ourselves. The paradigm in which we live is that people are lazy and stupid. And if you believe in that, then obviously whenever you have any kind of hunch, you say, no, 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 that can't be true. You know, if, if I'm told that I have to work hard to achieve success and I have to work on my weaknesses and I really suffer from that, then that's because I'm lazy and stupid, not because somewhere inside me there is a truth which I refuse to listen to. So the conversation has to start with, well, if we go a few steps back, then obviously everything has to start with the habit of awareness because awareness opens your eyes to the reality. Then we need some very basic skills in uh, emotional intelligence because you are going to uncover things which are unpleasant and we need to know how to deal with painful emotions and we normally are not very good at that. And then we go into heavy duty work, which is being honest with yourself and that's not as straightforward as it seems. The hardest thing for us to admit is that we actually live in an illusion. And what I've noticed, because I've taught that for years, that the more delusional people are, the less they're willing to admit that they sometimes lie to themselves, that sometimes they don't know the truth, and sometimes they are wrong. And that's just the beginning of the journey. You definitely need kindness so that you don't eat yourself alive in that process, <laughs> kindness and compassion, and you need courage. And it's, uh, as, as I keep saying, it's a journey, it's a journey, it's a journey, because it is, you know, new habits, new patterns need some time to be impressed. Is that what you do at Mind Valley? At Mind Valley, I'm a co-founder and I'm an entrepreneur in Mind Valley context. And I used to do a lot of marketing for a long time. Mind Valley is probably the world's biggest online platform for personal growth and um, transformation education. So we work with some of the world's best teachers in that field. So anything which is not taught in academic institutions, but important for life, be it relationships, you know, spirituality, intuition, even. And I became an author gradually, having worked in that industry for a long time. That's great. More Passage to Profit and our guest, Christina Mondlakiani, right after this. What are entrepreneurs' most valuable assets? Their passion and ideas. We can't protect your passion, but we can protect your ideas. Trust Gearheart Law to protect your ideas with premier patent, trademark, and copyright services. There's never been a better time to start your own business. Contact us at GearheartLaw.com. At Gearheart Law, we have years of experience protecting entrepreneurs' ideas and brands using patent, trademark, and copyright protection. So if you have a new consumer product, a new software application that you're planning to build or sell, or a brand or company name that you want to protect, contact the experts at Gearheart Law, www.gearheartlaw.com. Don't let the wrong protection strategy ruin your business. All of our attorneys are passionate about protection and are licensed and qualified to represent you before the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Don't start your project without calling us first. Contact Gearheart Law on the web at G-E-A-R-H-A-R-T-L-A-W dot com. Together, we can change the world. This ad has been read by a non-attorney spokesperson. Now back to Passage to Profit. Once again, Richard and Elizabeth Gearhart. We have with us Christina Mandlachiani. Talking about her new book, Becoming Blossom. Right. And I think one of the premises is that just by acknowledging our flaws, we become happier, we become sort of more in touch with our authentic self, right? I mean, that's really the purpose of this, right? And by being closer to authentic self, then we can cope better with life challenges and appreciate ourselves more. Is that right? Well, definitely you will feel happier and it's so much easier to live your life if you don't have to pretend to be anything. But I, my favorite illustration of, uh, of the results of, of reading my book, for example, would be 
from the movie X-Men. I hope you guys have seen it. There is uh, this character, Mystique, and she's dark blue, like uh, very alien looking with red hair. But most of the movie, she uh, moves around as this young, beautiful woman. And there is this one dialogue she has with her friend slash nemesis where he tells her, while you're trying to look like you do, this blonde, beautiful woman, like while you're trying to be someone, someone else, you're taking away very necessary attention from the things that truly matter that could save your life. And that, I think, what is the much more important result of working with your darkness it's not that you will feel better and happier. It actually gives you the power. It's an empowering shift. It gives you the fortitude to believe in yourself, confidence, I guess, right? We are our strongest, our most powerful, and our most valuable to the world when we can embrace ourselves the way we are and stop diverting that important attention from things which matter to just holding up facades and being liked or you know, being pleasant to others. How do you embrace who you are? You have to revisit all those experiences in your life which are um, uncomfortable and try to reframe them. And here I need to make a step back again. There is this uh, one very fails saying that we love that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And why I say it fails because we see more examples of that not being true than it being true. Because if what didn't kill us made us stronger, we'd be surrounded by a lot of beautiful, strong individuals. In reality, what doesn't kill you can scar you, can traumatize you, can wound you, can make you less of yourself, but can make you build thicker, higher walls. So your experiences only lead to transformation if they're coupled with proper framework or with proper ideas and, of course, support, support from your environment. So very often those things that make us shrink, they make us shrink because some very unpleasant emotions and comfortable emotions are tied to those experiences. And very often, even the most painful experience, if you reframe it or if you look at it uh, from the point of view, what does it tell me about me, about my values, for example, or about the things that I have in my life? And I'm not talking about putting on rose-tinted glasses, but just looking at your painful experiences from the point of view, what does it teach you about you and your values and your essence? that helps you understand them in a very different way. So embracing your flaws is not just saying, oh, whatever, I love myself like I am. No, it's actually seeing the value in the things that make you shrink. Very simple, superficial, not so painful example. I have a bizarre accent for which I've been criticized a lot. I've had people walk out of the room, out of the room when I speak because they don't understand my accent. Now for me to embrace my accent and to stop feeling ashamed and trying to put on something else. I needed to realize that it comes from my past, well, from my life, from the past in my life, not my past life. <laughs> uh, my peculiar background, which actually also gives me the way I see the world, my belief system, you know, my understanding of the world. So there is value in it. And that is, I guess, the, the tricky part to actually reframe your experience and see the value rather than just superficially try to convince yourself that you'll find yourself the way you are. Just start taking your life as it comes with a dose of introspection. You know, when things happen, when you're not happy with yourself, just slow down and ask, what's going on? Why do I feel this way? What does it tell me about me and about my values? Do you recommend any kind of journaling or yes. any type of way of recording your, your thoughts as part of this journey? There are a lot of skills that you would need, especially if you're new to personal growth. One of them is the awareness, because it all starts with awareness. I could go on a long talk about that. I would also recommend journaling, especially journaling when it comes to your feelings, emotions, experiences in life, you know, your thoughts. So rather than just journal about the events, but how did you experience your day? Because that brings together two things. First of all, journaling is it's proven uh, by research that it helps you process uh, painful, traumatic emotions. The second thing is that if you journal in a very introspective way, like what happened to me? Why did I feel the way I felt? Why did I think the way I thought? It adds the habit of that introspection that I keep talking about because I do believe that your relationship with the world is a reflection of your relationship with yourself. So if you want to improve that relationship outwards, you should be asking yourself, why am I feeling the way I do? And just one little word of advice on top of that, try to do it with curiosity rather than judgment makes a huge difference. One of the wonderful teachers and writers, Susan David, she says, discomfort is the price of admission to meaningful life. And not everything 
is there for a reason. In fact, saying that everything happens for a reason is also a slippery slope. So, for example, my mom two years ago lost her sister to COVID. It is a painful experience which doesn't have anything to make you think that, you know, it's for a reason, it's for the better. It's not. But it is the moment to be grateful for the fact that you've had this person in your life, for the experiences that you've had with that person. It's just that reminder that whenever, you know, if we have pain, that means we've had meaning, we've had love, we've had something that mattered to us. So not every experience is going to make you feel better, but every experience is a chance for you to see your life the way it's unfolding and, and what's beautiful in it or what was beautiful in it. Another example was when a year ago a war started on our borders. I live in Estonia. I'm in Estonia right now. I was scared. Everybody in my country was scared. We were so scared. It was hard to live. There was huge anxiety until one moment I realized that there is no certainty in life. The only thing I have is this present moment. So sometimes these experiences, which are painful, are a reminder for us to savor what we have, what we haven't lost yet. That's really profound. I think you're right. And I don't like it when somebody else tries to put their vision of perfectionism on me. And I feel like some things that, about me that people think are flaws, I don't consider flaws. Usually when people have any problems with you, it's more about them than about you. And that kind of brings us to the topic of self-love. So you talk about self-love in your book. Can you explain, in your opinion, what self-love is? You know, um, when, when it comes to self-love, it's another dangerous topic, because if I talk about that in very short terms, it will be superficial and misunderstood. The same way, like, you know, embracing your flaws. Does that mean maybe I'm imperfect, but just, you know, I take myself, take me too? No, it's much deeper. What The same thing with self-love. Self-love for me is about your relationship with yourself. And when it comes to any kind of relationship in life, our uh, golden standard is love. You know, we're supposed to love our partners, our friends, our children. We are supposed to love ourselves too, unconditionally, if possible, effortlessly. That's, uh, again, something which we as a society don't understand. Very often we mistake self-love for selfishness, for self-obsession, for indulgence, which all are distortions of self-love and come from the lack of it rather than the abundance of that. So I think the easiest example would be, I usually have a glass of water with me when I speak, but today I left it somewhere. Uh, an easiest example would be a glass of water. You know, a, gl a glass is the vessel, water is love. So self-love is the water which is in the glass. If your glass is full, you can't pour anything from outside. Usually when people need love of their environment, you know, admiration, love me, take care of me, make me feel special, it's because they can't give it to themselves. That's why you can pour more water in that glass. So we start sucking up love from outside. So for me, self-love is about healthy relationship with yourself. It is uh, like any relationship. It's commitment. It's awareness. It's being present. It's being willing to love yourself the way you are real, imperfect, before you become perfect. There is research that says that 85% of contemporary adults have low self-esteem. Self-esteem is, in essence, uh, well, one of the symptoms of the lack of self-love and self-respect. Now, uh, a lot of entrepreneurs make a huge mistake thinking that they don't have time for that fluffy stuff because I have business on my hands. Aren't my revenues more important? Isn't economic crisis more important? So we very often think that we have problems in business. In reality, what happens is that we have problems in our private life which translate or project onto our business. And your well-being or your relationship with yourself is primary and maybe if you remember yourself back, I do not know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, when you were starting your first business, you were this bright-eyed person, nothing, nothing would take you off the track because you, you actually felt good about what you were doing. A lot of us business people, what we do, and we do a huge mistake, we let ourselves get so sucked into our uh, mundane problems without realizing that our well-being is actually the foundation of our ability to deal with those problems. There are no big problems, there are small you. So in business, this is a really a crucial skill because business is about failing. Yes, we do make money by what? By making mistakes, by failing over and over again. If you are afraid of failure, if you think that you need to deserve your love by accomplishments, there are so many consequences of, of not loving yourself in business. It's the imposter syndrome. It's the feeling that your success is phony, it's not real, it's not sustainable, it's overworking, it's burning out. It's all from thinking that you do not deserve your own self-love and respect. People say in the past that, well, the amount of money you make is a reflection of your worth. I don't agree with that. 
I agree. It's a simplistic saying. It's the it, it is definitely reflecting how much value you're uh, capable of offering to the world where they're also willing to pay for it. Obviously, it's not quite true because our children give us such amazing value. Our loved ones do. So it is a little bit simplistic and uh, it's reflective of our, of our consumerist society obsessed with achievement. I agree with you. It's, it's not true. In business, yes, you do need to value what you have to give to the world. And I would only apply that saying in the situations where people are afraid to ask for money for whatever value they are offering. But attaching yourself to that idea is dangerous. And since we are on that, you know, 20 years in personal growth and transformation taught me one thing. There are no absolutes in life. There is no fun size that fits all. There, there are no recipes. Christina Mandlachiani, the co-founder of Mind Valley, and also has a new book coming out, Becoming Flossom. More Passage Profit right after this. Hi, I'm Lisa Askley, the inventress, founder, CEO, and president of Inventing A to Z. I've been inventing products for over 38 years. Hundreds of products later and dozens of patents. I help people develop products and put them on the market from concept to fruition. I bring them to some of the top shopping networks in the world. QVC, HSN, Evine Live, and retail stores. Have you ever said to yourself, someone should invent that thing? Well, I say, why not make it you? If you want to know how to develop a product from concept to fruition the right way, contact me, Lisa Askeles, the inventress. Go to inventing a toz.com inventing a to z.com email me lisa at inventing a to z.com treat yourself to a day chock full of networking education music shopping and fun go to my website inventing a Passage to Profit continues with Richard and Elizabeth Gearhart. We just had an amazing discussion with Christina Mondlachiani, becoming flossom and lots of really great information, a lot of things to think about too. So, Well, I think she's absolutely right. The only way you can really be a success in life is if you really work on yourself and care about yourself and see yourself for who you are. And that's a continuing journey because I've been at it a long time. (laughs) On to Elizabeth and her projects. Get us up to date. Okay. So I have a couple of things going on. One is Blue Streak Directory. And Blue Streak Directory unleashes the power of video for small businesses. It's a directory of small businesses using video. And I haven't done a soft launch yet. I kind of played around with it during COVID, but it was in a totally different form than it is now. So I'm not going to say a lot about it other than I'm working on it. I'm making strategic partnerships, which is very cool. That will be a lot of help. So I continue to work on that and I'm pretty excited. I'm going to go out networking more and I'm going to talk to people about it when I'm networking have a couple of events coming up. So that's going to be fun. My other project is something I'm doing with Danielle Woolley. It started from a sick kitten and I went from vet to vet to vet over eight or nine months. So while I was going through this, Richard made the suggestion. He said, why don't you reach out to a community? And I said, I know there's Facebook communities, but that doesn't seem the right place. So I said, but maybe I'll start a podcast. The universe was with me because the next day at a conference, I met Danielle Woolley and I had kind of known her. And I suggested it to Danielle and she said, well, I work with cat rescues. That sounds like fun. Why don't we do a podcast together? Well, little did I know at the time that Danielle is incredibly tech savvy and was able to do a lot of stuff. So we kind of split the work. So we have the podcast called the Jersey Podcasts. We hit 500 downloads. We started it late last year, the very end of December. We've hit 500 downloads now. We have people come on and talk about their cat. And we're just having a blast. It's so much fun. But we're also building this community where we want to embrace people of all types and ignore their flaws as much as we can to Christina's point. So those are my two projects that I'm moving forward. So enough about me. Now I want to go to our next guest. We have had her on the show before. Tisa Harster is a certified medium meaning that she went through a scientific process and she is the real thing. And I'm just so excited to have her back because the last time we had her, we got into such great conversations. So welcome, Tisa. Hi, thank you for having me again. Yeah, so you have the Angel Campaign. So why don't you tell our audience who didn't hear the show you were on before what you're doing? I do a lot of different kinds of things. As you mentioned, I'm a certified medium, so I do help people connect with past loved ones. 
but I'm also a life coach and spiritual therapist and motivational speaker, public speaker. I actually do a lot of that all over the United States. And I'll have certain topics depending on what my hosts are looking for that kind of flows with the topic of their conference. And so the angel campaign is just about like bringing peace, bringing light, bringing healing, bringing love, whatever really people seek me out for. I, I see people from every walk of life, every hierarchy, every religion, every background possible. And they all have unique reasons for contacting me. In the Department of Spiritual Therapy, I do it all. Wow. So what is spiritual therapy? Here's a good example. It's the best way to maybe explain this. So let's say I have somebody that reaches out that's struggling with addiction issues or suicidal thoughts. I help them spiritually get themselves to a healthy place because sometimes psychological therapy or counseling, or it's not helping them. Like there's spiritual or energetic blocks that could come from childhood traumas or a, an abusive relationship. Something that emotionally affected them so deeply, it's just like embedded in them spiritually and they cannot get past it. Spiritual therapy is helping the wounds of the soul not the mind. I believe in good therapy, counseling, but sometimes people carry wounds in their soul that they need help with. Absolutely. Because I do think that there are different levels. I think there's the mind. I think there's the spirit. I think there's the psyche. And I, I think all those things can be affected in ways we don't understand, like from when we're little, right? You're absolutely right. And I have had clients write to me and I have testimonials that have said, like, I've been seeing my therapist for seven years and feel more enlightened after five sessions. Because we're doing her therapist and me are doing two different jobs, working with two different parts of that being. Christina, do you have a question or comment for Tisa? I think it's a wonderful way to approach approach your wounds from uh, from different aspects because I am so much in my head. I really appreciate when, uh, you know, when there are people who can work with the things which are my shortcomings. So yeah, I think it's, it, it's, it's a really valid approach to healing your wounds. I appreciate that. I, I enjoy it. Tell me a little bit about your spirituality, I guess, and how that kind of interacts with the patients that you work with. So I am a non-denominational saved Christian. The ability I have, I was born this way. I didn't learn it somewhere. And I've always had this connection to heaven, I would call it. And that's what I work with, how I work. So let's say somebody comes to see me it's almost like I'm being shown. I can just see it. It's like you're watching a movie of and receiving memories that aren't yours. And I know they're not mine. I know it's about the person I'm sitting with. Obviously, I tell them what I'm receiving, and I'm receiving it from source. And then I just kind of am the medium, the go-between. It's hard to explain because no two readings or sittings are the same. I do sessions on people all over the world. Can you explain a little bit what the certification was? Yes. So it's a series of tests for six weeks, and they're pretty difficult. It's five tests a week for six weeks. And if you don't pass one of these tests, you don't move on. You're, you're immediately disqualified. So there's no room for error. And these tests are kind of like remote viewing. They'll give you a remote viewing test and ask you to describe objects or places you haven't been. And then whatever you say is fact-checked on the spot. They already know what they're asking you. They had me listen to tapes of voices all reading the same script. So like I had five people on an audio and they read a story to me. And then I would have to read that person based just on their voice. Wow. So they didn't like all tell me a different story. Um, another test was black and white pictures from maybe the 1800s of people that they would tell me like uh, information that they wanted specifically about them, like hold the picture up to and say, how did this individual pass away? They're pretty difficult. Wow. Only eight mediums a year even pass it, is what I was told. I enrolled myself in this, not because I needed to, because nobody could tell me if I had this or not. I know I have it. I just think medium has been very taboo throughout time. What I do has been seen as taboo. And I think people that maybe are seeking out spiritual healing or peace really don't know who they can trust. So I really did this for other people, mm -hmm. to let other people know I would be a safe choice if they hired me or sought me out. Right. Do you have any experiences with any people that really impacted you or stayed in your mind or that you would want to talk about that were really intense? 
Yeah, I just had a somebody like that the other day. I was working an event at Gazer in Coeur d'Alene, where I live. Gazer Ranch is a pretty big deal where I'm from, just because that's where a lot of celebrities live. You know, Mark Wahlberg's there. Everyone's there. Everybody's there. And they host these events that I read at. And a lady, a tennis player lady who's never seen a medium, she sat down in front of me and she said, I don't really know if I believe in any of this, but I'm here. And I said, I feel a father here for you. And he keeps saying Junebug. And she said that that's the name he called her her whole life was Junebug. And then I had told her that I something about his birthday was coming up. And she said, it's tomorrow. His birthday was. So things like that, where she sat down, not a believer and walked away a believer because I'm an evidential medium. So I can provide evidence that people just couldn't know those things without knowing you. So do they ask you questions for messages? They can. Their loved ones that have passed or they can ask me if somebody's contacting me. I'm you know, obviously I ask them what type of reading they want because I give many different types. Like back to the spiritual therapy is that has nothing to do with loved ones on the other side. That has to do with your soul. And I can help you in a heavenly way with that. So it just depends. And sometimes a lot of people see me for both. Like they initially become a client of mine to connect with somebody on the other side. And then lo and behold, they're like, you know, I'm having this health issue or I have a poor relationship with my daughter and I can't figure out what's going on between us. Things like that. So a lot of my life coaching clients bleed over. Wow. How much of what happens to us do you think is attributable to the spiritual part of ourselves? Do you feel like the soul predominates over our biology, for example? To a degree, I think we have free will and our free will is not violated spiritually a lot. Sometimes you just have difficult experiences and there's no real reason why. In my line of work, there usually is some sort of soul contract or soul lesson or soul agreement to have that experience. Nothing in these lives are really new to us. And that's where deja vu comes in for people. That's what deja vu is. It's the soul recollection of what it already knew before it was here. So then when it's playing out in physical time, you're like, hey, I feel like I've been here. That's more of a remembrance of what you already knew you signed up for. That's interesting. I know this woman named Heidi Rome, and she's written a book, too. She has a very severely autistic son, so that he can't even talk. But he told her, all you have to do is love me, which is a really healing message for parents or anybody who's trying to help somebody who's suffering. But he also told her that he knew he was coming into this, that he chose it, but he didn't know it was going to be so hard. And I have worked with people in comas. Families have brought me in for people that are on life support or comas or don't have the ability to speak. And I've helped in that way. I relay a message like you just said. And they're all different messages, but you're right. Those kind of hardships, martyrs, if you will, a lot of time the soul does incarnate into that body with the understanding that that's its path already. I'm trying to help people realize that self-care and soul care are not the same things. You know, we are not superhumans. We need both soul care and self-care to have fulfilling lives. And the self-care is about self, like getting your nails done or taking a bubble bath, where soul care is about connection, connection to your inner being. And I think it's the most overlooked part of self-care. People can find you at theangelcampaign.com. Is that the best place? Mm -hmm. Or my Instagram, Tisa Harster. Well, thank you, Tisa. That was really a great segment. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. So now we're on to our next presenter, Lee Barnathon, who is a ghostwriter. And it looks like he's written some pretty intense stuff for people. So welcome, Lee. Tell us about what you do. Well, I started in newspaper journalism and, and I loved it. I did it for 16 and a half years. But as you know, that industry died and I moved on to technical writing, but it wasn't nearly as creative and didn't give me the same joy that I got from journalism. And then um, I started striking out on my own as a general copywriter, writing websites and speeches and resumes and blogs. And I came across the law of diminishing returns because being all things to all people didn't give me the same rewards as I got when I was a journalist. And then while I was self-employed, a Philadelphia area school teacher asked me to ghostwrite his book. He had this story about how he had a mysterious heart ailment that put him in a coma 
for 16 days, at which time his family was basically being told, say goodbye to him, get his affairs in order. But instead, he woke up and he recovered fast enough to start the next semester. His coma began in May and he started the next September. That I thought was a great story. But it allowed me to do all of the investigative work I loved when I was doing journalism. And writing long-form stories was always something that I really liked to do. And when I was done, the emotional reward of helping this guy tell his story outweighed anything else I ever did. And it made me realize this is why I went into journalism in the first place, to get at deeper truths and tell compelling, memorable stories. That's great. So what types of stories do you work on? What types of projects do you ghostwrite for? I focus on memoirs and business books and expository essays. I don't really do fiction, even though I have edited fiction. I spend more time in, again, from journalism, nonfiction. How do you find your clients or how do your clients find you? There are a wide variety of ways. I do a lot of outreach, both on LinkedIn, my blog, and cold outreach where I identify people who need ghostwriters. For example, all you people who are public speakers, a book increases your value. If you're an adjunct professor, a book increases your value. And if you've written a business book, you might have fans and people who are really interested in what you've written, and they want to know, how did you get to where you are now with these great insights that you provided in your business book? You can tell your story in the form of a memoir, and I reach people through just me querying them to find out, are you interested? Do you have this on your radar? Have you considered writing a book? 81% of people think they have a book in them. And yet, 97% of people who start a book never finish it. How do you work with somebody who has a memoir? What is the process of working with them like? It's a long process, but I start with a screening interview, and I have to ask this person three key questions. Why do you want to write the book? What's the story? And what prevents you from writing it? And those answers will help me determine if I want to work with them because I want to work with people who have unique stories to tell. I will turn down certain people because their story doesn't speak to me. I don't see the benefit of investing so much time to tell their story. Sometimes they don't have a good reason to write a book, and so I'll reject them for that reason. But what prevents them from writing it? Usually it's because they're not a writer. They don't think they have what it takes to be a writer. They don't feel like they have the time to invest, or they're just afraid that they can't do it themselves. What are some of the reasons people give for wanting a book that you kind of mesh with? Most people want to write a book because they have a story that they just have to tell. They think it's that important. They think that you know, if they don't get it out of their head, they're going to regret it because it's going to help a lot of people. And they know deep in their soul, if people could just tap into their wisdom, their lives would change for the better. Interesting. Christina, do you have a question or comment? Yeah, that naturally. I mean, <laughs> we're in, in very similar business, right? I have a question. What do you do with uh, with stories which have not had the time to digest for the person? I, I, why I'm asking this question is the uh, one of the top books in Estonia last year was uh, a book, a memoir by uh, a young man who lost his wife to cancer. And uh, I uh, I got this book as a gift. I attempted to read it, but it was really, while I understand the value for him of expressing his self-experiences, but as a reader, I felt it was very, very raw and I would have enjoyed uh, getting a little bit more uh, closure to that story. So do you help your writers or your your uh, source material to come to some kind of palatable conclusion with their book, or do you just take uh, take what they have to give? It depends. Sometimes the story has a logical conclusion, but sometimes it hasn't ended yet. So the story ends with where they are now. I mean, for example, the, the project that I'm working on now does have a logical conclusion because this already happened. The woman married a psychopath, a nonviolent psychopath who engaged in securities fraud, got arrested, served five years, and he had a girlfriend living a double life on the side. Well, she found out she divorced him, but because she engaged in this fraud while they were still married, the state of Arizona came after her for the $1.4 million he built out of investors. She doesn't have the money. So she's suffering from PTSD. 
because, well, she was gaslight for how many years? And she finds out he's got a squeeze on the side. So she has no money to fight the state, represents herself, eventually wins, gets the judgment overturned, goes one step further, and gets the law changed. Now, that's a logical ending because it's all happened. But if you've, you've watched movies and, and, and books are the same way, sometimes, you know, if this story hadn't had a conclusion yet, we would say, well, I'm still suffering from PTSD, but I got my judgment overturned. What's going to happen next? Well, I don't know. I'm going to keep working on my PTSD. And that's the end. To me, it sounds, and I, of course, didn't read the book or seen it, but to me, it sounds like the book may have needed a little bit more editing, maybe more fine tuning of who the audience was, who's the target market for this book to be able to get a clearer sense of its effectiveness and how it could have been more effective. We definitely all have stories, but sometimes you need some closure to your experience. And it's not necessarily a logical conclusion, but at least coming to peace with that. So that's why I'm asking, because you are the person who screened some of the authors and, and says right. your story is worth telling. That's true. I'm looking for the unique, the memorable, the compelling, the interesting, the different. So where do people sell their books? Do they sell them on Amazon? Do they make hard copies out of them? Are they digital? How does it work once they have the book from you? The answer is yes. They can do it on Amazon. They can, and through Amazon, it can be done onto a Kindle or it can be a hard copy. I mean, Christina, your book is going to come out in various formats, as I saw on Amazon. People can have literary agents pushing the book and can be published through one of the big five publishers, which then ends up in bookstores. Do people ever just want to do the book just to have for like their family so they can hand it down to like their kids and grandkids? Yeah, that Philadelphia school teacher that I mentioned, he never published his book. It's a family history. It sits on his desk. But it's nice to have it all written out. How do you actually work with the people and get the story out of them? I start by asking a lot of open-ended questions. You know, the ones that start with who, what, where, when, how, why, which is what a journalist does. But from those questions comes the information that I need. Now, to your point, Sometimes they do provide me with information, but there's a lot of time that we spend developing the outline of the book, and that will cover all of the highlights. And then we'll go back through the outline and interview even more than I did for the outline. And that will also require me sometimes to have to talk to other people to help flesh out the story. You know, what the author has a viewpoint. Well, if it's a memoir, if you don't get other people involved, you end up having an unreliable narrator. And in a nonfiction book, that's not a good idea. What's your favorite story? I mean, who's been your yeah. favorite client? It's the current one. Everybody I speak to and I say they all have their mouths open. They go, oh my God. They say, wow, what a great story. I can't wait to read it. And I tell them, I can't wait to finish writing it because we're still in the writing process. Well, that's great. I would agree with you. You certainly caught my attention with that one. But I'm, I'm glad that everything worked out for her in the end, right? It'd be kind of hard to read, though, because we've all had people in our lives that are at least a little bit that way and some a whole lot that way. And like, I think I'd get pretty mad reading that book. Well, she knows exactly who she wants to read that book, the people who have been married to these kinds of psychopaths. She's got her target audience down. You know, she wants to write this book. And so these other people will read it and say, oh, that's me. I can overcome this too, or I already have. So she knows exactly what she's doing and who she's writing for. That was really interesting. So Lee, are you taking clients now? I am. LeeBarnathan.com, L-E-E-B-A-R-N-A-T-H-A-N.com. But also find me on LinkedIn. Search the same name, Lee Barnathan. I'm there. And I'm ready to talk to people. And don't I sound like a salesman right now? <laughs> and we're all salespeople if we have businesses. So yes, you do. But that's a good thing. It's not a flaw. I can take three clients a year. I have one. I got room for two. Come on, guys. You know you have a story to tell. You know you want to do it. You know you want to tell them. And you may not realize this, that there is a world of difference between having the story in your head and getting it down on paper. Two different skill sets. 
Absolutely. So we'll be back with more Passage to Profit and our guest, Christina Mondlachiani, right after this. There's never been a better time to start your own business. The opportunities are infinite and only limited by your imagination and enthusiasm. At Gearheart Law, we believe the most successful companies all have one thing in common. They start with a solid foundation first. Gearheart Law has years of experience protecting entrepreneurs, ideas, and brands using patent, trademark, and copyright protection. So if you have a new consumer product, a new software application that you're planning to build or sell, or a brand or company name that you want to protect, contact the experts at www.gearheartlaw.com. Our professionals will create a custom strategy designed to fit your needs and your budget. All of our attorneys are passionate about protection, licensed, and qualified to represent you before the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Don't start your project without calling us first. Visit gearheartlaw.com. Together, we can can change the world. Visit G-E-A-R-H-A-R-T-L-A-W.com. This ad has been read by a non-attorney spokesperson. It's Passage to Profit. Now it's time for Noah's Retrospective. Noah Fleischman is our producer here at Passage to Profit, and he just has a way of putting his best memories in perspective. I got so scared when I was watching this great movie on the internet last night. It wasn't the movie that was scary, it was what happened during the movie while I was watching it. My internet started to act up, so the picture started buffering a little bit, the computer screen began to freeze up. I couldn't believe how scared I got. What if my computer dies? What if I never have internet again? Turns out everything was fine, but it really bothered me how upset I suddenly got. You know, when I was a kid, the TV was pretty important in our home too, but my folks knew how to take it in stride. I'll never forget the night I was four years old. We were seated around the television watching McCloud with Dennis Weaver one night, and suddenly the picture went completely black. Tube trouble. We had sound, but no picture. My aunt, my mother, my uncle, these were not quiet people by nature, but there they were, seated silently around this television with no picture. I was just sitting there waiting for someone to say something. It was fascinating. Finally, my aunt reluctantly muttered, Shouldn't there be a picture? Well, we got the TV fixed and the computer came back and everything was fine. As a friend of mine reminds me, worry never changed the outcome. You just deal with it and you move on. Now I can get back to watching that great movie on the internet about these people during the Depression whose radio broke. I'll never know how they survived. Now more with Richard and Elizabeth. Passage to Profit. And we are winding down here. It is time for Question of the Week. And so, Elizabeth, what is our question for our guests? Our question is, who's your favorite rock star? And we are going to start with Tisa. So, Tisa, who is she your favorite? She was very concerned during the break that somebody else <laughs> might say it. But we decided to put her first. So, Tisa, please. Elvis Presley. He is my favorite just because he had a lot of highs and lows in his careers and he still gave a thousand percent. Just good looking, good performer, good style and really good music. I mean, what's not to love? Like it very much, like it very much, very much. Tina, favorite <laughs> rock star. Well, I wouldn't have uh, stolen that for sure. I actually like uh, rather indie music and classical music, so I'm not sure if I can produce a rock star name. <laughs> but if you have to have uh, an American name, it would be Iron and Wine. It's a band with a history, or the man with a history. Who was that? Iron and Wine, I would say. Iron and Wine. Okay. I haven't heard of them. But I, now I have. Somebody. I said I like indie. <laughs> See, it tells us something about everybody. <laughs> Lee Barnathan, who's your favorite rock star? Bruce Springsteen. I've only seen him 25 times, including coming up in this December, and I'm looking very forward to this last go-around. Wow. Well, the boss. The boss. Of New Jersey. You gotta, you gotta love the boss, that's for sure. Mine is the Beatles. I mean, their greatest band of all time. I first heard him when I was 10 or 12 years old, and they still sound good. I am going to say Grace Slick because I love Jefferson Airplane and I love that they became Jefferson Starship and she had a lot of great energy and a great voice. Anyway, amazing episode and really lots of things of the mind, I think. You know, we have spirituality, we have understanding ourselves, and we have telling our stories. So right. all They're, interrelated. Right. So let me go through the websites one more time. Our guest was Christina Monlachiani, and you can find her at ChristinaMon.com, K-R-I-S-T-I-N-A-M-A-N-D.com, or MindValley.com. And she has a book called Becoming Flossom, which you can buy. 
And if you haven't had a chance to check out mindvalley.com, they have some amazing programs there. Really lots of opportunities for self-growth and self-development. The problem is there are so many good programs, you don't know which ones to pick. Then we had Tisa Harster, who's a certified medium with the Angel Campaign. And you can find the angelcampaign.com. And she works with a lot of celebrities and she's really the real deal with what she does. So you can ask her about spiritual healing and all sorts of different things. Whatever comes to mind when you're working with her. She's really amazing. You're something of a mind reader, too, because you always know what I'm going to say and what I do before I do it. Well, do what? Uh, either that or I'm becoming pretty predictable. I don't know. You're becoming predictable. And then we had Lee Barnathan, who is a ghostwriter who really is looking for interesting stories, helping people get what's in their head on the paper in a very captivating, fascinating way. And you can find him at leebarnathan.com, L-E-E-B-A-R-N-A-T-H-A-N.com. He is taking clients. So if you have a story in you that you can't put on paper, call Lee. So before we go, I'd like to thank the Passage to Profit team, Noah Fleischman, our producer, Alicia Morrissey, our program director. Our podcast can be found tomorrow anywhere you find your podcast. Just look for the Passage to Profit show. And don't forget to like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And remember, while the information on this program is believed to be correct, never take a legal step without checking with your legal professional first. Gerhardt Law is here for your patent, trademark, and copyright needs. You can find us at gearheartlaw.com and contact us for a free consultation. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back next week. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.